Let us give our attention to God's Word. As we turn to Job chapter 36, we're going to be bridging two chapters. We cut off last week at Job 36.23, so we're going to be starting at Job 36.24 and going through Job 37.24. So all of chapter 37 and then the last part of chapter 36. That's on page 442 of the ESV Bibles, and we are closing in on the end of our journey through the book of Job. It's 42 chapters, and we're going to be leaving off uh, with only 38, 39, and then 40, 41, 42 left. So Job 36 and, and 37. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together first. Heavenly Father, once again we come to your word. We ask that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. That you would give us the eyes to see what you want us to see in this passage, ears to hear. Father, show us the true meaning of this passage and show us also how to best apply it to our lives so that we can live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In February of 2021, a winter storm hit Texas. Harris County was hit the hardest. And it stopped traffic, and it it eliminated all power sources. Coal, wind, nuclear, natural gas, everything was out. In fact, millions of of Texans were without power for quite a long time. At the height of the storm, 4.5 million homeowners and small businesses were without power. And the state spent several days with temperatures below freezing. Not below zero, like what we're normally used to during a winter storm, but below freezing, so under 32 degrees. Now the tragic result of the snowstorm was the death toll. At least 57 people died. Some from falling and slipping on the snow and ice. Some from motor vehicle accidents because they weren't used to driving in snow, but the vast majority, over half, were from hypothermia. They just got too cold. There was a lot of finger-pointing after the storm. The government pointed blame to public regulators and energy grid officials, and the energy grid officials and public regulators pointed back to the state and the legislature and state agencies. But in the end, no matter where the blame landed, people had to acknowledge the fact that Texas was ill-equipped to handle a winter storm. They don't experience winter storms like we do in the north. They're just not used to it. They're not used to driving on snow. They're not used to walking on ice, and they're not used to having to keep warm. In the end, they were just ill-equipped. They were ill-equipped. In Elihu's final speech to Job, Elihu tells Job he is ill-equipped to bring a case against God. He's ill-equipped to to question God's purposes. He's ill-equipped to accuse God of being unjust. So the aim of Elihu's final speech is to to bring Job to a point of recognition of his ill-equipped state. And that's because God is greater than man. So as we move to application in this passage, we're going to unpack it again, verse by verse, but when we move to application, moving from then to now, 
we have to ask the question, are we ill-equipped? Or are we equipped? And the answer is a little of both. It, it's, it's a yes and no. So we're going to take a look at what we are and what we are not equipped for as we make our way through the last of the Elihu speeches. So this is Job 36, starting at verse 24 through the end of 37. Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges people, he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It crashes, declaring his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. This is the last of the Elihu speeches. So one more time, we're going to take a look at what should be familiar by now. This helps us organize the speeches of Elihu, and it's our outline that we've been using from the beginning. Remember, the big banner title is God is Greater Than Man, and then the sub-points that support it, God is not silent, God is not unjust, God is not like us, God is not purposeless. And then this week, Roman numeral number two, See Roman numeral number one. God is greater than man. So Elihu, who brings it full circle, this is his, his main thrust, this is his main message to Job. 
God is greater than man. Therefore, Job, you need to repent. You need to turn back from your, your speech against God. So we're going to see some of the same material here in this last of the Elihu speech. He's still trying to communicate to Job that God is greater than man. And he does so. In, in verse 24, we're talking about God is visible in creation. So verse 24 begins, You, Job, your, your job, Job, is to extol his work. Praise God. You need to be doing that. Not, not questioning God's purposes or complaining that he hasn't treated you properly. And so Elihu goes on to develop this concept of what we call general revelation. And that's where God communicates his existence and his power to his image bearers. So that's what we see in verses 25 and 26. It says, all mankind has looked on it. Well, what's the it? What has all mankind looked on? God's creative work. All people know there is a God because they can see his creative work. And in theological terms, this is what's generally known as general revelation. General revelation. So general revelation is the knowledge of God that God reveals through nature or the natural world. It's all around us. We see it in creation. Psalm 19.1 describes general revelation. It says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's general revelation. So it exists. All people see it. Everyone knows that there is a creator. But not everyone wants to accept that. The Bible says that people apart from God's grace suppress the truth of God and his eternal power and his divine nature. So general revelation exists, among other things, to proclaim God's existence and his power so that all men are without excuse. In other words, no one can show up on the last day and say, well, I didn't know there was a God. God says, no, I showed you plainly in creation, in general revelation. And Romans 1 talks about this in detail. So let's look at Romans 1, 18 through 21. Listen to that general revelation language. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God and they did not honor him, as God or, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So you, you hear that? The eternal power, the divine nature of God, it says, clearly seen, clearly evident in creation. The world, the animals, the, every, everything we see when we look around us, as Job's going to develop, or, or excuse me, Elihu's going to develop in a moment, the weather patterns and everything we see screams intelligent design. It, it screams creation. When we, think of, when we think of our bodies and how complex and how intricate they are, there is no way they could possibly have just sprung up from nothing. I mean, we, we know we've, we've decoded the DNA sequence. DNA is coded language. It contains instruction. It contains information. 
Languages don't sort of spontaneously emerge. That means there's a creator. There's some intelligent design that, that made that language and gave those instructions so their bodies know what to do and cells know how to, to multiply and what kind of cells to make. It screams, creator, so that men are without excuse. So general revelation says there's a creator who planned all this, who made all this. He exists, his divine power, his divine nature. There is a God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. General revelation. And yet, it says, we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. We do not know everything there is to know about God. As we look around in, in creation, and it, that, that tells us a lot. That tells us there is a God, his divine nature, his power. But it doesn't tell us everything uh, or, or anything about uh, that we need to know about God. Or excuse me, everything we need to know about God. And that makes sense, right? We're not God. We don't have access to all of God's knowledge. The fullness of his being and his glory are not revealed to us. God doesn't have to reveal everything about himself to us, and he hasn't. He's held some back. But the phrase, we know him not, does not mean that we we can't have a saving relationship with him or that we cannot know anything about God other than that eternal power and divine nature. We can look at creation, and we see that, that, that foundational knowledge of God is existence, but creation alone will not tell us how we are to be made right with God. Creation and general revelation alone will not tell us how it is that that sinful people will be reconciled to this holy creator God. For that, we need special revelation. Special revelation. Special revelation is the word of God, scripture. So this is is fairly... um, basic concepts when we're talking about the revelation of God and what he chooses to reveal to us. So it's probably a good idea to to use these as handholds and and just kind of tuck these away for future use. General revelation is the world and creation and everything around it. Special revelation is God's word. So it's, it's special revelation that tells us how we are to seek this God of creation. General revelation says there is a God, he exists, there's this great power and divine attributes. Special revelation says now this is how you are to approach him on his terms, through his son, through faith. In fact, Romans 1, which we just read, described general revelation, goes on later. By the time we get to Romans chapter 10, it points to the necessity of special revelation. So Romans 10, 14 through 17, this is within the context of how all people will, uh, must turn to Jesus in faith and, and how they, they turn to Jesus and will be saved from their sins. Paul says this in Romans 10, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So God has given all people knowledge of himself through general revelation, the creation of the universe, so no one can stand up and say, I didn't know there was a God. But he has given specific instructions on how to turn to him 
in his special revelation, Scripture. And it's the Bible that tells us when the Bible is read and proclaimed, when someone speaks or preaches or reads or, or hears the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is what God uses by the power of his spirit to call people to himself. He uses the word of God to call people. Because it's the word of God that convicts us of sin. It's the word of God that convinces us of our need for a Savior. And then it tells us who that Savior is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So general revelation, special revelation. Good idea to just tuck those handholds away. And that's what Job is talking about, excuse me, Elihu in Job is talking about when he's describing all these, these creative uh, actions of, of God, the, the weather patterns and things that we're just about to get into. He's talking about general revelation. So let's look at some examples of God's creative work. In 26 it says, we know him not. So in the context of this passage it says, um, it, it's saying to Job, you can't possibly know everything there is to, to know about God and about the world. And also, Job, you, you are ill-equipped to, to bring a charge against God. You're, you're ill-equipped to make a case against God. You're just, you're not there, Job. You're just a man. Verses 27 through 33, God's authority and power on display. Elihu describes the water cycle and how God governs the weather with his omnipotent power. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? And and a skeptic at this point might sit back and kind of cross their arms and say, well, here we go. This just shows how dated the Bible is. I mean, this was back in the time when they didn't have, you know, uh, radar and uh, they they couldn't predict the weather. So uh, this just shows us that that we've come a long way. We know so much more now, and so this doesn't really apply. We can predict the weather. Can we? We can explain in general how the weather is predictable. If it drops below freezing, then the, what comes down can turn to snow instead of rain. And we know from observing God's world that, that certain things happen when high-pressure systems move in. Certain things happen and are characteristic of low-pressure systems. We understand that. And we know based on past weather systems that certain conditions are likely to arise and are likely to produce so many inches of precipitation. But even with all our experience, even with all of the years of observation that we've had on the weather, with all the data that's stored, with all the computer modeling with all the artificial intelligence, with all the, the, the radar and everything at our disposable, uh, excuse me, every, everything at our disposal, we still can't predict with precision. Even the best meteorologist in the world can have, has to say, this is what we can expect. They never say, this is precisely what's going to happen because they don't know with absolute certainty. We hear this all the time. We probably heard this last, last winter, seven to 10 inches of snow. Well, which is it, seven or 10? I don't know. And then sometimes it's, it's outside of that range. Sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's four. Sometimes the storm just happens to miss us altogether. Sometimes we get a dusting instead of seven to 10. This is our best guess. I can't tell you exactly. 
Mankind is able to make estimated predictions based on years of observing the weather. So the question is, who created the weather? God. Who created the weather so that it behaves in a predictable fashion so that we can make these types of best guess estimates? God. On the other hand, God knows exactly how many clouds will be formed each day and each night. God knows exactly what's going to happen in every square inch of sky space over the entire world. He knows the size of each cloud, the shape of each cloud, the height of each cloud into the atmosphere, and how high they will extend, and all with exacting precision. Simultaneously, he knows exactly where each bolt of lightning is going to hit at all times, all over the world, 24-7. Look at verse 32. He commands it to strike the mark. Try that, weatherman. Try, try predicting where every single lightning is going to strike. God knows where each individual molecule of water and oxygen are, and all other molecules for that matter, in the universe since the beginning of time, and he knows it all at once. No, we're, we're not anywhere near God's knowledge, even when it comes to the weather. And Elihu is making this point by, by pointing to the weather, but that point can still be made today. God has access to that blueprint, creator, God knowledge that we have, we have not uh, in any way begun to touch upon. Verse 29 and 30, he makes the same point by talking about thunder and lightning. 31, by these he judges people, he gives food in abundance. So by these, meaning weather, rain, lightning, storms, by these God judges, think flood, Storms, high winds, lightning, they can cause massive destruction, loss of life, but also the rains water the ground and provide needed moisture and irrigation for crops. So by these, God does the same thing, one or the other. Verse 33, the weather is a testament to God and his power. It declares his presence. Even the cattle also declare that he rises. Even the animals acknowledge the presence of God. So you too, Job, should acknowledge that God is all-powerful and not question his injustice. Do you see what Elihu is saying? God is greater than man. In other words, God is greater than you, Job. You're ill-equipped to bring a case against him. Verse, uh, excuse me, moving now to chapter 37, 1 through 13, at God's command, God sends storm, thunder, lightning, snow, rain, cold, ice, whirlwind, all of that is sent, and it declares his majesty. They're all part of his general revelation given to all people. Verse 7, he seals up the hand of every man, all men who, whom he made may know it. So whenever the weather is present, he's making the argument that you know when severe, severe weather happens, people generally seek shelter indoors. We don't work outside when it's severe weather is going on. So that their hand is no longer producing, it's sealed up. Animals also take shelter in their homes, verse 8. And all these mighty acts of God have a purpose, verse 12 and 13. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands of them, commands them on the face of the habitable world. So they have a purpose, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. We understand that God can discipline people, cities, nations, by the sending of weather, bringing floods, destroying crops, property damage, human casualties. It happens. 
They can also use the weather to sustain the land, to maintain biomes and, and animal life. He does that. He can also command the weather out of his love for people to provide relief from oppressive heat, to provide water to the ground so that the food will grow and produce abundantly, or so people in dry and arid places can have enough water. Nothing is random. And here's the point. From, from wrapping all this up, Elihu's point to Job is this. God controls the weather. God controls all the storms and all, all the severe weather things that are happening. God also controls the storms of life, Job, like the one you're going through right now. God is greater than man. Therefore, Job, you can trust God to work out his purposes when you are going through one of those storms, like right now. So there's no need to arrogantly accuse God of mishandling your situation, which is what Job had been doing. And finally, verse 14 to the end. Now, this is not only the conclusion of this chapter and this passage, but remember, this is the conclusion of Elihu. After verse, excuse me, after chapter 37, he goes dark. We don't hear from him again. He's not referenced again. This is it. So this is the conclusion of the Elihu speeches. And his conclusion is, is aimed at Job, and it basically is, check your attitude. Verse 14, hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. In other words, in light of everything I've just said to you, not only here, but everything in the last several chapters, in light of all that, think, Job. Stop, just, just think for a minute. Consider what I have said. And then he asks two rhetorical questions that are designed to get Job to the point of recognizing that he is ill-equipped to be asking God these challenge questions or to armchair quarterback God and his purposes. Verse 15, do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? No. Job does not command lightning and point where it can strike. 16, do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Again, no. Job has to admit, he is neither perfect in knowledge, nor does he have God's blueprint creator knowledge about weather or anything else. And then verse 17 and 18, this is, this is a, a sarcasm. So he asks the two rhetorical questions, and then he, and then he adds at the end, you, you can't even maintain, you, you can't even stay cool when it gets hot out, hot, let alone control or have all this knowledge about the weather. You can't even tolerate the weather. You, you whose garments are, are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. You get overheated, Job. How can you even claim to know everything there is to know about God? Verses 19 and 20, in light of God's wondrous works and in light of your lack of understanding, it would be foolish for you to draw up a case against God. What could you possibly say to God? You're sitting in darkness. Wishing to meet God and challenge him is like wishing that you were swallowed up. And then verse 21, verse 21 says, and now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies. This actually goes with 20, 19 and 20, and the verses after, so before and after. Before, trying to challenge God and bringing a case against God is like trying to look into the direct sunlight. Don't do it. Bad idea. But also looking directly at beholding God's glory and his awesome majesty would be like the blinding of the sun. It would be like looking into the sun. So it actually goes with the verses before and after. And then finally, 23, 
the Almighty. We cannot find him. God is beyond us. You cannot rebuke God or demand that he defend himself. You cannot argue with God and win or question his purposes and escape unscathed because God is great in power. Therefore, Job, repent and submit yourself to God in reverence and fear. That last verse. Don't, don't arrogantly think that, that you're smarter than God. Don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that, you're, that you know better than God. God's looking for reverent fear and respect, not a prideful heart. So concludes the Elihu speeches, and he concludes by telling Job he's ill-equipped. If we had to summarize just this past uh, section that we went through, we could say this. In his final speech, Elihu directs Job's attention to God's power and control over the created world. Job is told to consider the wondrous works of God and to recognize the foolishness of bringing a case against God. God is greater than man. Therefore, Job should reverently fear God and discontinue walking in pride. That's, that's what was going on at the end here. Well, at the beginning we said, we're going to ask this question in the application, are we ill-equipped? Or are we equipped? And I said the answer is a little of both. So let's start with the ill-equipped part. Number one, we are ill-equipped like Job to, to do what Job had been doing. In other words, we are ill-equipped to bring a case against God. We also, like Job, are ill-equipped to accuse God of, of treating us unjustly or, or accusing God of making a mistake. We are, we are ill-equipped. We're not God. Uh, one person said, and I, I don't remember who or when or where, but they, they described it like this. They said, if you gave me the power of God, you would see how many things I would change immediately in this world. But if you gave me the power of God and the understanding and knowledge of God, you would see me leave everything exactly the way it is. That's a, that's a humble statement. It acknowledges that God is God and, and we are not. I hope we all realize we're not God, that we're not equipped to armchair, quarterback, how he carries out his purposes and plans. In other words, we're not equipped to run the universe. Can we find some common ground on that? Can we get there? We are not equipped to run the universe. I hope so. So we're ill-equipped to do what Job had done. Number two, we're also ill-equipped to save ourselves. It's not just in this area of, of knowledge or, or understanding the weather. It's salvation. It's all things spiritual. We are ill-equipped to save ourselves. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means everybody. None of us begin life because of our federal head, Adam. Remember, Adam was the first man created and he represented us so that when he sinned, we sinned. So the consequences of his sin fall on us. So everyone is in, in that same, same group. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now this is an, a key ingredient in understanding of our position before God. Because man has a natural tendency to, to view God like one of us. If I do enough 
good things, then God will smile on me and accept me. Because if we do good things for somebody else, then we generally reciprocate and we, we think, oh, they're, they're a good, good guy, good person. I'll do nice things for them. And we build a relationship on that. That's not how it works. So the Bible goes out of its way to teach us that we cannot earn our salvation or work our way into a right relationship with God. That's Romans 3.20. Then Galatians 2.16. I love coming back to Galatians 2.16 because Paul hits on the same thing three different ways in one verse. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you hear that? Three times. Paul's saying, look, it's pretty simple. You can't work your way into heaven. You, no matter what you do, and no matter how much you do, that is not going to make you right with God. You're not going to be justified. Justified, remember, is being declared righteous by God. It can't be done. So the Bible is clear. It's not happening. But God has, in his special revelation, told us how it does happen. John 20, 31, these are written, this is a summary statement by the Apostle John at the end of his Gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, have, and you may have life in his name. So it's not by what we do, it is through faith. Because God has provided salvation in Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You are ill-equipped to save yourself. I'm equipped, though, says God, and I've given you my son, Jesus Christ. He's done everything necessary, so you need to put your faith in him. If you're found in Christ instead of Adam, then, then you're in the safe zone. If everyone's either in one of these two headships, you're either under Adam or you're under Christ. When you trust Christ, there's, that's how salvation happens. You, you put your faith and trust in him. You repent and believe in Christ. Now I will declare you righteous, not because of you're good enough, but because Jesus is good enough, and his righteousness is credited to you, and his blood paid for your sin. You do not owe me anything. My wrath has been poured out on my son. John 3, 3-7, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, this is Jesus speaking, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you've got to have a work of God. You, you must have the spirit of God bring you to new life. Notice this is not talking about some kind of detached intellectualism where, where you simply you know, give consent or, or believe the right things. Yeah, I believe that. No, this is, this is talking about new life, born again. This is talking about a heart change, a heart transformation. This is talking about having a, a new heart with new desires planted in you. Instead of, instead of the word of God being this just kind of confusing, oh, I don't get all that, and then preaching being the, the Charlie Brown monotone voice, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, when God does a work in someone's heart, preaching all of a sudden becomes interesting, and, and we begin to creep forward on the edge of our seat. 
and we hear something about the things of God, and we hear about how we're saved, and we say, wait, now what? What did, what did you just say? I'm a sinner, yes, and we're convicted of our sin. We see our need for a Savior. That's, that's God doing that. And he gives us a hunger and a thirst for more of his word, for more of his people, for more of his truth. We are ill-equipped to save ourselves. God is fully equipped, and he has done it. Now, I want to end with talking about what we are equipped for. This, is a, this has been kind of a downer message if all we talk about is how we're ill-equipped. We're ill-equipped for this, we're ill-equipped for that. Well, let's talk about what we are equipped for. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And I'm just going to read through this. It's not up on the screen yet. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to focus in on that first part, 11 and 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the first few roles, first few types of people mentioned, we no longer have with us. The apostles, and if we understand prophets as revealing revelation from God, those, those are no longer with us. They were here in the first century church in the, in the initial uh, early uh, beginnings of, of the church after Christ ascended and they established our, our doctrine and our teaching. They did things like, like wrote the New Testament and, and things like that. So they established this foundation on which the church was built. But then if we keep going evangelists, um, there's different understandings, understandings of this, but if we look at evangelists as those who are specifically gifted in proclaiming the gospel and they do not necessarily have to be uh, as a, in a leadership position in a church, but they're more like frontline gospel proclaimers. And then we have shepherds and teachers. And if you see a footnote, if you've got an ESV, it says, or shepherd teachers. Other translations have pastors and teachers or pastor teachers. And that's because, again, there's some disagreement on whether or not Paul was saying that the shepherds and teachers are two different things, or if it's one person, one role, shepherd teachers. And they're talking about primarily those elders that are called to lead churches in the terms of, of an overseer who also preaches. In other words, a pastor. That's their role. They oversee the church and they preach and, and teach. And it says he gave those people to the church to equip the saints, the saints are believers, for the work of ministry. What is ministry? Ministry is, is a believer serving someone else in the name of Christ. It's a very broad category. It can refer to a lot of different things. So Jesus gave his church these point people, these leaders, teachers, overseers, to equip 
the saints for the work of ministry. So the church, the local assembly, is one place where we go as believers to be equipped to minister, which is a very broad category, all the work that we do in Christ to one another. Why? To build us up. We don't have to guess. We don't have to guess. We keep reading. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the purpose of Jesus giving his church, giving believers these point people is to ensure that the church, the believer's body is built up and grow up. You heard all that language. It was very repetitive. Maturehood, the measure, the stature, the fullness. May no longer be children, but to, to, to grow up, build up, all this, is to keep going up. If we think about coming to Christ as a new believer, and please hear me, you don't have to get cleaned up before you come to Christ. You don't, you don't have to get your house in order. I don't have to get rid of sin X, Y, and Z. Okay, now I'm ready to come to Christ. No, Jesus says, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Come as you are. So we come as we are, but we don't stay as we are. It, think about coming into Christ, and, and we, all we know is Jesus is Lord, and we're, we're saved, and we've got that new birth. Okay, let's call that level one. Jesus does not want his people to stay at level one. He wants them to grow up, all these other things. Why? It tells us right here, because if all we do is stay at level one, then we are going to be more susceptible to getting picked off by all this. Strange doctrine, deceitfulness, human cunning, craftiness. The enemy does not want anyone coming to Christ. He wants to kill and destroy But if someone does come to Christ, they make a profession of faith, he wants to pick them off. And so he uses every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness. If if you come to Christ in your level one and you stay there, then then chances are, as time goes on, you're going to hear something on the radio or from from some other pulpit, or you're going to read a book, and they're going to explain something, and you're going to say, well, that sounds okay, that doesn't sound too bad. They're going to say, you can... You can, uh, you don't have to go to church. You can be a Christian and not be a part of Christ's church. Or, or you can be a Christian, you don't have to be baptized. Or, or you can be a Christian and you can still engage in the way your life was beforehand. Or, or you, you don't have to repent of that lifestyle. You don't have to repent of that uh, sexual sin that you happen to, to have a fondness for. No, that, you're, that's compatible with Christianity. You're going to hear this false doctrine, and that's going to lead you away from God's Word, which means it's away from Christ, which means it's away from salvation. Once saved, always saved. We understand that. But in the beginning, sometimes there's a profession of faith And God's still at work in that person. We know there are examples of people who make a credible profession, but then in the end, they're not in Christ. So this is what this is talking about. God says, come as you are, but don't stay at level one. You need to be equipped. And how are you equipped? You're equipped in the local church through the gifts that God has given to the church, these pastor, teacher, leader, elders, these people that have been gifted, specifically to build up and equip the saints 
for the work of ministry. I hope we understand that the local church is not man's invention. We're not here this morning because we think this is a good idea. Or that um, somewhere in, in, since in the history of church, since, since Christ ascended, that it kind of became a tradition that we have this church. No, 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 no. Jesus established his church. Jesus put elders and deacons in place over his church. He gave very specific instructions. He even has qualifications. When Paul talks to Titus, he says in the beginning, I, I left you there for a reason. You need to put in order the church there by, by appointing elders. So somebody might say, well, you know, the church is where anybody's gathered. We're just going to gather. We're going to get four or fam- five families together. We're going to gather in our living room. We're going to do church. That's not church. You, you don't have any elders. You, you're, not, you're not able to, to properly administer the sacraments. Now, this, this is Jesus' church. It's established by Jesus, and he gives him specific instructions. This is how it is to be run. This is how it is to be ordered. These are who your leaders will be. And so we follow that because we want to be equipped for the work of ministry and built up. We want to get beyond level one. So the local church, and then number two, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So all scripture is breathed out by God, divinely inspired. These aren't the random musings of a, of a religious philosopher. These are the words of God given to us, inspired, inerrant scripture. And it is to these that we go and they're profitable for teaching, for instruction, for reproof. That means that taking to someone and, and improving, saying, no, this is, this is an error, and here's where I could show you why that's an error. For correction, not that, this. For training in righteousness, pointing us in the right direction, here's where we need to go. That the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Now, Paul's talking to Timothy, and Timothy is a church leader. So, narrowly, this is talking to to, to church leaders, pastors in general, basically, the word of God, this is your feeding trough. If you're not regularly feeding off of this, then I don't even know why you're trying to be a pastor or an elder. But broadly, it applies to all of us as believers. This is where we come for equipping. We go to the local church, and we go to God's word. That's where we are equipped to be the men and women that God has created us to be, to grow in Christ, to be discipled, to be equipped, to minister to one another. We go to these places, local church, word of God, to be equipped. What would you say to someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus if you said, I'm, are you a Christian? They said, yeah, I'm a Christian but they don't have any kind of solid connection to a, a local church and they don't regularly feed off of God's word. I would say you're ill-equipped. You're ill-equipped to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To be cut off from the local church, that's like putting a, a plant in a closet. 
If you take a house plant and you take it to an interior room in your house and you put it in a closet and shut the door, what's going to happen? It might live for a while, but it's going to continually wither and eventually die. Being cut off from God's word is like, is like not watering the plant. You withhold the water. Again, what happens over time? It withers and dies. You're cut off from the local church and the Bible. It's like putting a plant in the closet with no, no water. Ill-equipped. God made us. He created us to be in relationship with him, to live for him, to grow in him, to serve others in his name, and to use our gifts to serve Christ and his church. And God's primary means for equipping born-again believers is through his church and through his word. It is there that we will be equipped. I hope we can all agree we are ill-equipped to run the world. We are ill-equipped to save ourselves. But thanks be to God, he has equipped us to be the men and women that he has called us to be through his church and through his word. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself both in general revelation and the world around us, your, your divine nature, your power, your creative works, but also through your special revelation, your word. We thank you for showing us our need for a Savior. Thank you for showing us how it is we are made right with you. And Father, we thank you that not only uh, do you save us, but you equip us through your local church, through your word, you equip us to do the work of the ministry. Father, thank you for the full provision that you have granted us. And we ask that we take full advantage of that provision. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.